Okay, so uh, hello Next Gen. Uh, it is so good to see all of you. Thank you for joining us uh, for service today. We are into Sermon 3 of our Revelation Sermon Series. And you might have realized by now that it is not possible to pour through every single word or every single detail in our limited time on the pulpit. So head on over to that Telegram channel, that resource folder, and you will find more information on Revelations as well. You know, last Saturday after Next Gen service, I actually joined some young people to play football. You know, uh, those of you who were there, give me a wave. Yeah, wave, yeah. I, I, I played for about an hour with them. And uh, it reminded me of my first football game post-pandemic. At that particular game, 10 minutes into that game, I felt blisters on both of my heels. But you know, I played on in that game even when it hurt because I didn't want to disappoint the friend who invited me. Now, by halftime, both of these blisters had split open, okay? But I thought, you know, hey, I'm, I'm playing quite well, and so I slept on a couple of plasters, and I played on, even when it hurt. Now, midway through the second half, when I saw some blood seeping through my white socks, I don't know whether you will show that picture of... Uh, um, what it looks like. Okay, you can show the picture. Um, yeah, just a little bit of blood seeping through my white socks. I was so hungry to play football because two years of pandemic, no football. I didn't want to stop, even when it hurt. Now, I'm sure many of you, you have persevered for far harder and tougher stuff, even when it hurt. Some of you here, you have endured the pain of bullying. Some of you here, you have signed extras even when it is not your fault. Some of you here, you have been nursing a breakup that you didn't ask for. Maybe there's some of you here who are struggling through mental health issues nobody knows about. Or maybe some of you here, you are submitting to an unreasonable supervisor. And for some of us here, maybe you are being mocked at for wanting to live like a God-fearing Christian. You see, friends, hardly anyone prays for a tough time. We don't say stuff like, God, give me suffering. God, I want pain. Many of us, we understand that challenges in life are inevitable, especially if these challenges are caused by our believing loyalty to God. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe you have already guessed by now that the sermon title is Even When It Hurts. Even When It Hurts, and today, we will learn about the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia that persevered through persecution and the church in Ephesus that didn't grow weary even when it all hurt. But question is, why were these churches able to endure the persecution and the suffering? And that answer is found in the big idea for today because Jesus assures that we have a hope that goes beyond all our present sufferings. I say that again, Jesus assures that we have a hope that goes beyond all our present sufferings. That's why the churches then were able to go through what they went through. Now last week, we learned about what Jesus said to the four churches that compromise. Do you, does, does anybody recall the four components in every message to every of the seven churches? Pastor Wilson talked about it. And the first one is a description of Christ's divinity. Every message to the seven churches has this description of Christ's divinity. Then it has a commendation of how the church has done well. 
then it comes with a rebuke and a consequence of the church's disobedience. And finally, there's a promise for those who overcome. So today, I will unpack the issues in Smyrna, Philadelphia, and Ephesus and present what Jesus revealed to the churches in categories instead of in sequence, okay? So we'll learn how Jesus revealed who He is, how He commended and promised rewards to those that overcome, and we will also learn about Jesus' commands and rebuke. So my first point is this, Jesus reveals who He is to the persecuted church. Right? Jesus reveals who He is to the persecuted church. Now, notable Christians in history have endured persecution for their believing loyalty in Yahweh. From Peter and Paul in biblical history to Bonhoeffer and Bunyan in church history. And more recently, closer to home, we also know that Christians in East Asia, South Asia and the Middle East have endured persecution and imprisonment for their faith in Jesus, even when it hurts. I know of a pastor in South Asia who lost her husband because he was assassinated by religious radicals. And incredibly, many years later, she led those who were involved to salvation in Jesus Christ. I know of another pastor in the Middle East who stayed faithful to pastor his church despite regular threats of being bombed due to war. He told me that he doesn't even know who will turn up in service every weekend. But why were these Christians able to endure such persecution and suffering? Perhaps it is because Jesus has assured them with a hope that goes beyond all their present suffering. So it becomes critical then for them and for us as Christians to remember why we even endure persecution and suffering in the first place. You must have a strong why to know why you're going through what you're going through. Now, in the opening address to all the churches, starting with Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, Christ was described as Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, the stars and lampstands that John used here they were actually from his preceding vision in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, and Revelation 1, verse 16. We covered that in our opening sermon. And this vision contained Old Testament references. So as a receiver of the book of Revelations, Jewish minds would be familiar with the writings and prophecies of Daniel and Zechariah from the Old Testament. And these prophets would describe stars as angels overseeing each of the churches and lampstands as the collective group of believers whom Jesus addressed. So these churches, they had the mission of being witnesses for Jesus. So Jesus, as the one holding the seven stars in His right hand, He was portrayed as being totally in charge. And as one who was walking among the seven golden lampstands, Jesus was portrayed as always walking in the midst of the believers. So, friends, don't miss this. And some of us here are struggling to overcome our present suffering. You need to hear this. John's description of Jesus reminds us that Jesus is aware of our struggles and is firmly in charge all this while. I'll say that again. 
Some of us need to hear this. Jesus is aware of our struggles and is firmly in charge all this while. He wrote that to the church in Ephesus and now he writes to the church in Smyrna or he speaks to the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus here was described as the first and the last. The one who died and came to life. Later on in the sermon, we will unpack what the church in Smyrna would go through for Jesus. But here, John set the stage for them through his description of Christ. As the first and the last, John is trying to tell us that Jesus alone possesses all the attributes of eternity. Now, who has that kind of attribute? And as the one who died and came to life, John was saying Jesus has overcome even death itself. Who in history has the powers of eternity or has the attribute of eternity or has overcome even death itself? So if you are a church hearing that, what an assurance it is for anyone hearing that, that Jesus is victorious even over death. And Jesus is victorious forever. Now finally, in Jesus' address to the church in Philadelphia, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus was described as the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now pay attention to how Jesus was described here. This was actually a reference to the house of David described in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. It should be on your screen. So you can see that it's very similar. John is lifting from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. Why was he doing that? John wanted to assure the church that Jesus had the highest authority and control over those entering the kingdom. That assurance became the hope, the anchor of their hope in all their present sufferings. So in the first point, I brought out how Jesus reveals himself to each of these three churches and how that revelation of who he is gave them the why for the suffering that they are going through. All right? So for those who are interceding, for those among us who are interceding for loved ones to be saved, let us remember that Jesus has the highest authority and control over who enters the kingdom. So these revelations of Jesus to the persecuted church assures us that we have a hope that goes beyond all our present sufferings. Those experiencing persecution and suffering shouldn't just know why they are enduring it. They have to know who is on their team. Now if Lionel Messi, the World Cup winner, was on my team, I will play on in that particular football game even if I have 10 blisters and a broken leg. Why? Because I know that victory is assured if Messi is on my team. Right? So John, when he was describing Jesus' divinity, he wanted to assure them, hey, Jesus is on your team. And he wanted to tell them who this Jesus is so that it reinforces the why of why they were going through the persecution and suffering. So besides describing Jesus' divinity, John also captured point number two, how Jesus commands and rewards the faithful overcomers. How many of you here, you want to be known or you want to emerge at the end of life as a faithful overcomer? How many of you want that? Right? I believe that's a rhetorical question. Most of us would want that if we are following Jesus. 
In Revelation chapter 2, verse 2 to 3, Jesus told the church in Ephesus, verse 2, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are patiently enduring and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So this commendation is started well with a positive evaluation. They endured for the sake of Christ, they rejected false teachers, and they had not grown weary. Now you see, like Ephesus, Smyrna and Philadelphia, they were very affluent cities. Smyrna was known to have an excellent harbour, to have great wealth, to have commercial importance, and they also had imperial splendour. Philadelphia was so important in that time that it was called the gateway to the east. So it's really ironic what Jesus then said to both the churches. Okay, so imagine these two churches are really doing well in their cities, but to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. And then to the church in Smyrna, Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, remember, these are all like prospering cities, right? He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Then in parentheses, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are not, and are not. So if you see the parentheses in chapter 2, verse 9, if you, uh, can, can you all see that? The, the, you are... I, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. You're poor, but you are rich. With this little uh, insight, we can perceive that the church in Smyrna were materially poor, but spiritually rich. Materially poor, but spiritually rich. And Revelation chapter 3, verse 8 tells us that the church in Philadelphia did well in not denying Jesus in speech and action. Now, for the believers to be described to have little power or are poor, it suggests that in that prosperous cities, they were likely to be ostracized, persecuted, and marginalized. Why? I submit this to you. It could be because of their uncompromising believing loyalty in God. So they were going through a real good time in the city, but as Christians, as someone who believed in Yahweh, they were going through a really tough time. How many of you know who Felicia Chin is? You know Felicia Chin? Yeah? Uh, I'll show you a picture there. Last year, Felicia Chin, she left the glitz and glamour of Mediacorp to join a faith-based organization called Hai Hauma as a presenter and a content creator. And you know what? If you read a testimony, you'll realize that she was actually afraid of disappointing people. She says this, I know I have a fear in this area. I'm scared that I won't be accepted by people who have seen me grow as an artist. But you know, I, I really like this line in the testimony. I was reading it on Salt and Light. It says, but her resolve, okay, so, so her resolve to please and follow God was really simple. She says this, I really just wanted to do what God wanted me to do. That's why I made that decision. 
And this is Felicia Chin, someone who is serious about living out her faith in God. So church, any Christian who is serious about living out their faith in God must face the potential reality of being marginalized, ostracized, misunderstood, or even persecuted. Now, if we go back to where John and Jesus was, Jesus then now assured believers in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. He says this, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. What he meant here was that these believers were not preserved from the trial, not preserved from the trial by being removed from it, but that their faith was preserved through the trial because they have been sealed by God. What this means is that their salvation is guaranteed regardless of what trial they go through. Now, if you want to know more about this idea of seal, it will be taught in the next Revelation sermon series or in the next Revelation installment. So make sure you turn up for that sermon. All right? Now, besides commending the churches, Jesus also promises a reward for those who stay faithful in overcoming the trials coming their way. In Revelation 2, verse 10 and 11, Jesus said to the believers in Smyrna that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death, but instead be rewarded with the crown of life. And if you understand this idea of crown of life, it's a metaphor for eternal life. What this means is that those who are born once will die twice. And those who are born twice will die once. I say that again, those who are born once will die twice. And those who are born twice will only die once. Meaning, if you are, a born, if you are born again as a believer of Jesus, you will not need to fear an eternal separation from God, regardless of what you go through in this life, especially if you are persecuted for your faith. Then in chapter 3, verse 12, Jesus described what eternal life, what you're sealed for, right? What, what eternal life looks like for those who overcome, those who are victors. He says this, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar. Watch this word, pillar, in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now, when Jesus mentions that overcomers will be like pillars, it's kind of strange, don't you think? You will be like a pillar. You'll be like, huh? I don't want to be like a pillar. Now, when he used the word pillar, he was actually speaking heart to heart with those who were in Philadelphia. Because as a city, Philadelphia suffered more earthquake than any other city. Alright? And so the permanence of this new city where they'll be made like pillars, it really assured them. So they thought, they, oh, I'll be pillars, unshakable, right? So finally, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This means that conquerors can look forward to a new and eternal home, restored with unbroken fellowship with God in His loving presence. My friends, it means that our place in God's kingdom is granted 
by Jesus and is sealed and secured forever. Amen? Amen. With that assurance, Jesus invites believers to remain faithful to Him until the very end. Now the question is, the question is, will we, will we remain faithful to the very end when situations around us feel uncertain? Now at this point in time, we have learned who Christ is, how He revealed Himself to the churches. We have also learned the rewards that await for those who remain faithful to Him. And this, remember, I'm talking about that hope that, that Jesus gives us. It assures us that in Jesus, we have a hope that goes beyond all our present sufferings. But you know, that hope that goes on when we see in eternity is kind of far away. Today, some of us here, we are going through suffering. And until that day comes to pass, all of us here, we must still deal with our present sufferings, right? So that brings me to my final point. Point number three, Jesus calls the persecuted church to faithfulness. Jesus calls the persecuted church to faithfulness. Now in the face of um, present or coming persecution, Jesus gave different sets of instructions to the three churches. So to the first church or to the church in Smyrna, He said, chapter 2, verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. There are two commands in this one verse. The first command is this, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Second command is this, be faithful unto death. If I were to combine that into one it simply says, do not fear tribulation. Do you know that the Roman legal system, it then, back then, right, it allowed for people to be imprisoned without trial. It allowed for uh, people to be imprisoned not just for crimes, but also to coerce them to obey the authorities. Or I just throw you into jail and confine you there until it's your time to be executed. And this was what Jesus was warning the believers in Smyrna about. So Jesus, in fact, warned them that even more severe punishment was about to take place, be it in harsher forms of punishment or longer imprisonment and maybe even capital punishment itself. Now, because John consistently used figures of speech and Old Testament references in his writing, it is likely that these 10 days, right? It, it, it gave you a number there. 10 days of testing and tribulation, whether they were literal or not, 10, 24-hour days, uh, they were probably an undefined, relatively short, for a limited time only, and not permanent or eternal. But for the believers in Smyrna, when they hear this revelation of Jesus about what was to come, they knew that the threat was real. They knew that they were going to be in imminent danger. They knew that it may even cost them their lives, which explained why Jesus told them, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Now, when Jesus mentioned that the devil was about to throw some of them into prison, Jesus wanted the believers to remember that while imprisonment was physically carried out by the Romans, the spiritual reality was that it was the devil 
who was responsible for their plight. Jesus wanted, the, 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 wanted to remind the believers that their believing loyalty to God would be seriously tested. Now, remember earlier on in my sermon, I said uh, how Christ was introduced in Smyrna as the first and the last who died and came to life. I'm trying to connect the dots here for you. It now says, as they are about to be faithful unto death. Jesus is trying to tell them, as He introduced themself, Himself to them, only the one who died and came to life can give them the crown of life. Only the one who died and came to life can give them the crown of life if they stay faithful to God unto death. Only the victor can give the victor's crown. Amen? In chapter 3, verse 11, Jesus commanded the church in Philadelphia. It says this, Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. That means they have that crown. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. To hold fast to the confession of your faith in God is to always be ready either for impending tribulation or for Jesus' imminent return. The church in Smyrna had little strength, but they were depending on God's power to persevere through persecution and to endure suffering. You know, along with the church in Smyrna, the church in Philadelphia, among all the seven churches, right, was the only other church that received no critic. They didn't get criticised. So it's interesting, it's interesting, right, that among the seven churches, the only two churches that were unconditionally praised shared the same attribute of suffering and persecution. Seven churches, only two were unconditionally praised and not critiqued. What was their common point? They were both suffering and they were persecuted churches. So grace... Let us hold fast to what we have. Let us stay faithful in God. This is why it is important for us to strengthen our spiritual muscles to fast and to pray, especially when we are prone to rely on our own strength. It means for us to stay, staying faithful means that we are to study Scripture consistently to allow God's Word to shape our convictions. Staying faithful means that we regularly participate in a corporate worship service even when we had a tiring week or even when our friends are not coming. Staying faithful means that we are always forgiving others who have hurt us or those we love. Staying faithful means sacrificing our conveniences and serving each other outside of our comfort zone. Staying faithful means living out our faith at home, in school, at work, with Christians, with non-Christians, and even with anti-Christians. You know, we've learned through Smyrna and Philadelphia that staying faithful to God, especially in the toughest times, can bring out God's best in us. So next gen, if you're going through a tough time, especially if you're persecuted for your faith, stay faithful. Because from what we have learned in Revelation, God is about to bring out the best in us. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 2 to 3, Jesus commended those in Ephesus. He says here, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And if I hear that from Jesus, I'll be like, 
I know, right? Yeah, that's kind of nice, huh? And, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. And I'm thinking to myself, that's right, that's, that's us. That's the church in Ephesus, man. But have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not, and found them to be false. Jesus says to them, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Very good. And you have not grown weary. Now, if I'm the church in Ephesus, I'll be like, wow, yeah, well, Jesus, amen to that. That's so good, right? But then John suddenly flipped the mood. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, but. And once you hear but, it's not good. You know, it's like go to Eugene and say, Eugene, you're so handsome, but. Right? Or come in. You, are, you spoke so well just now, but you know that it's not good. So Jesus here, he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. These are very strong words for a church that received such lavish praise. Just a few verses before. And perhaps some of you, you have grown up with, this, with understanding this passage as losing your love for God. And when a preacher says, you know, you've forsaken the love you had at first and gives an altar call, you repented repeatedly at the altar call and you ask God to help you to fall in love with Jesus again so that you can get back the love you had at first. But is that what this verse is really talking about? Was this love only referring to our love for Christ? Or was it also referring to our love for one another? and love for others outside the walls of the church as well. The clue to this love that believers in Ephesus had abandoned is found in chapter 2, verse 5. It says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Question, what is at first? What did they do at first? The church in Ephesus didn't abandon, they, they have not abandoned their love for God. If they abandoned their love for God, they wouldn't be able to do all that they did in Revelation 2, verse 2 to 3, all the praises that I, I read to you just now. If they didn't love God, they wouldn't be commended like that. But do you know, in the church of Ephesus, in their zeal, in their enthusiasm to correct false teachings, they have neglected to demonstrate grace and love to others. And they have compromised on their love for other believers and even non-believers. So in other words, the church in Ephesus, they have forgotten what being made a disciple of Christ really means. More people, more like Jesus. That's what it really means. They have forgotten that. Jesus was telling this church that they no longer express their former zealous love for Him by being witnesses to an unbelieving world. And maybe they had become less enthusiastic about soul winning and became more infrequent and reluctant witnesses. Which is why Jesus followed up with a stern rebuke in verse 5 of chapter 2. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And Jesus wanted the church to stop neglecting the work, the work of witnessing, which they did at first. 
When Jesus warned of removing the lampstand from his place, if you remember what I said earlier on when Jesus revealed himself, right, as someone who was walking among the lampstands, he was referring to the removal of the church as light and witness to the world. The symbolism of lampstands as prophetic witnesses will be explained in a later sermon. But for now, know that it's a serious warning to the church in Ephesus if they did not repent in this area. The outcome of an unrepentant and unwilling church in soul winning and gospel witnessing is that the church will lose its effectiveness and purpose as a church and not fulfill its purpose in bringing the nations back to God. In effect, this kind of church will be purposeless. It will be useless and it will be no longer able to fulfill the mission of the church. Then it's game over for this church. To prevent that from happening, Jesus called the church to repent and to remember its mission of witnessing and making disciples and start doing what the church was commissioned to do, win lost souls and raise disciple makers. As the worship team comes back onto the stage, I want to share with you that in one of the first mission trips I ever led as a staff member, I remember serving at an orphanage set up by a local pastor and his wife. You know, there were around 300 orphans when we visited and many of these children came to love and to know God for themselves. However, what happened was that there were religious radicals in that area and they got angry because children were becoming Christians. So what happened was that they accused this pastor of sexually abusing the children. Now with these allegations floating around, the local authorities, they sent child protection service officers to take the children away. And I imagine that scene where there was nothing that the pastor and his wife could do. They were so helpless when they watched 300 of their children. Some of them called them father and mother, taken away by authorities, never to be seen again. The trippers that Anna was with, they just returned from this mission trip. They got to pray for this pastor, this wife and the 300 children. And in the midst of the orphanage, ruins. And this was the same orphanage that I served at over 10 years ago. I saw the heyday and Anna and her team saw what it looked like right now. Ruins. I remember in, in, in a testimony, they said that these young adults, the team, they cried together. They prayed together and they encouraged the pastor to press on, to take courage and maybe in God's timing to start something again. And then one tripper released a word in season for the pastor. The tripper said to the pastor, the time of mourning is over and the time to rebuild has begun. God will bring these ruins to life again. Then the team leader reminded everyone that if God wanted, uh, wants the orphanage to restart, He will provide the way as well as the funds. We just need to stay faithful to what God has called us to do. I'm going to ask all of us to close our eyes and bow our heads. Church, every single one of us, every single one of us, we have an assignment from God. 
not all of us can start an orphanage overseas like that pastor. But you know what? That pastor overseas cannot start a prayer group in your school. Cannot start a prayer group, a Bible study in your camp. Cannot start a believers gathering, praying for non-believers in your office. Next gen, what God has called you to do, He will give you the conviction, the resources, and encouragement to continue. I pray that you will press on regardless of the challenges that you face. We are called by Jesus to be witnesses of the gospel and disciple-makers for Him, whether we are young or mature believers. Next gen, challenges are inevitable, but in Jesus, we have a hope that goes beyond our present suffering. Let me say that again. Jesus assures us that we have a hope that goes beyond all our present sufferings. Right now, I believe that God has been speaking to some of you throughout the worship sessions, throughout the testimonies, throughout the preaching of the Word. And I want to give you a, an opportunity to respond to the Lord. I have two calls to make. The first call I'm going to make are for those of you who are experiencing some kind of trial because you refuse to compromise your faith and now you are being persecuted for it. Maybe there's only one or two of you here. Today, God wants to speak with you. God wants to encourage you. God wants to breathe life and power into you. For those who are serious about professing and demonstrating their believing loyalty in God, the Bible gives us an idea that suffering and persecution will come. And so today, you are crying out for help. You're saying to God, God, help me to remain steadfast in these trials and help me to persist until the very end. Help me to stay and profess my believing loyalty to you till the very end. Help me, oh God. If that is you, would you raise your hand to the Lord? Thank you, I see your hand. Thank you, thank you, I see your hand. Thank you, I see your hand at the side. Thank you, I see your hand at the front. I'm going to wait a little longer. Some of you, you need that encouragement. You're saying, God, I need help. It's tough. I'm trying to press on in my faith. But God, I'm, I'm getting desperate. God, I need your power. I need to hear from you. I need to receive that again. If that is you, would you raise your hand to the Lord? I want to pray with you. The second group of people I want to call out to are those of you who desire to remain faithful to the great commission of Christ until the very end. To make disciples of all nations. To witness to the lost. To bring the nations back to God's kingdom. Loving God and loving people were things that you used to do. But in recent times, you have abandoned them. Maybe because of the busyness of life, or maybe there is a personal reluctance to step out of your comfort zone. Today we hear in God's Word that Jesus tells us to remember therefore 
from where you have fallen. And Jesus says to repent. If that is you, you used to burn for the Great Commission. You used to burn to witness for evangelism. But you're saying, wow, I think I've lost that. God, would you reignite that in my heart right now? Because there is an army camp waiting to be saved. There is an office waiting to be saved. There is a school and a poly campus and a uni campus waiting to be saved. There are CCA mates waiting to be saved. God, would you reignite the Great Commission in my heart again so that I do not become ineffective. I do not become purposeless. As a believer, I will go out and with you, I will win the nations back to you. If that is you, you're saying, God, reignite that fire in my heart again. Would you raise your hand to the Lord? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I see your hand. I'm going to wait a little longer. You're saying, Pastor, pray for me. I don't want to lose my effectiveness as lampstand, as a witness to the world. That's not for me, Lord. I want to make sure that I get help from you, God, to help me to be an effective witness for all the days of my life. If that is you, would you raise your hand to the Lord? Thank you, thank you. Can I invite all of us to stand to our feet? worship team leads us in a time of response. Maybe just now you have seen someone beside you raise their hand. Right now, I would like for you, I mean, we have been praying together throughout this service. I would like you to pray for each other right now. We're not going to get people to come to the altar. Why don't you just turn to the person beside you and you say to that person, hey, I want to pray for you. Would you pray for me as well that I might be an effective witness? That, 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 that I am discouraged but I need God to reignite and give me courage again because I want to stand firm in my faith. I want to remain faithful until the very end. So why don't you just turn to someone beside you and you pray for that person right now. Let's make this a house of prayer that we may then fulfill our mission in bringing the nations back to Jesus, back to God. Come, let's pray together right now. This is my desire to honor you all with all my heart I worship you Give you my soul. I'll live. 